Hey everyone, and welcome to Battle of the Atom. This is your premier destination for all things X-Men podcast related on your Monday mornings. My name is Zach Jenkins, and with me as always is Hello. Adam Reck. Adam. Oh, hi Adam. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, how are you doing today? And you just totally cut me off. Oh, What's up with I that? Am, I am doing rhythm? so good, Zach. I am polybagged. I am trading carded. I am chromium. I am ready to go. Were any of Executioner's song no, chromium? I may, have, I may have gone a little far there. I'm sorry. Because, like, right right after Executioner's song, they get into, like, the Bloodlines that's thing, true. right? And that's Chrome. Yeah. Oh, man. We're not talking Bloodlines today, though. Oh, my today, God. Though. I'm not looking forward to when we get to that. Bloodlines oh, is man, bad. So bad. <laughs> hey, hey, everyone who knows what this show is, you know, you can, you can be okay. But if we have anyone who's new, this is Battle of the Atom. This is a show where I, Zach Jenkins, and Adam Reck... Uh, We take three X-Men stories, and we put them on our big old list from best to worst X-Men stories of all time. Number one is Days of Future Past, and right now at the bottom of our list, number 27, is X-Men Phoenix Legacy of Fire, which is very bad. The comic no one should own, ever. Don't own it. (laughs) The comic. Now, here's a comic that maybe no one should own, but a lot of people do. (laughs) It's Executioner's Song. Now, Executioner's Song, before you get in, because I know you're excited, I know you're pumped. Executioner's Song is getting ranked today thanks to one man. That man's name is Gareth G-Funk Mitchell. Nice. I think G-Funk is a Christian name, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's right in the Bible. That's that's somewhere in the Old yeah, Testament. Yeah, right, right there in Hezekiah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, did you just say no yes, one I, should own this? Everyone should own this. Come on. Well, everyone should. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Gareth, who supports the show on Patreon, and thank you very much, Gareth, uh, thinks that people should own it, or at least he thinks that we should talk about it. So let's uh, talk about it. Adam, what's Executioner's Song? Uh, Executioner's Song, for those of you that uh, may not have read it, is the story where it appears as if Cable has assassinated Professor X, but it really turns out that it was Strife working out his daddy issues. And uh, it's a long one. It's 12 parts? 12 12 parts. parts Uncanny, adjectiveless, X-Factor, and X-Force. And the creatives on that, just so we get them out of the way. Scott Mm -hmm. Lobdell, Fabian Nicieza, and Peter David wrote it. Uh, There are pencils by Brandon Peterson, Andy Kubert, Jay Lee, and Greg Capullo. Inks by Terry Austin, Mark Pennington, Al Megram, and Harry Caleandrio. I butchered that. I'm sorry, Harry. Sorry, H-Dog. And colors by Mike Thomas, Marie Javins, Glennis Oliver, Joe Rosas, and Steve Bucanello. Nice job. Yeah, that's quite yeah, a, quite a few humans that. working on this particular uh, series here. A handful of <laughs> sapiens, yes. Yeah, so I gather you're not a huge Executioner's Song fan here, Zach? There's a lot about Executioner's Song that I appreciate. Because here's the thing about Executioner's Song. 
It's 90s as hell. Like, I know we talked about how 90s Fatal Attractions is. This, this I think, is just a little bit more. But I'll I'll tell you, this has a lot more of the good stuff about the 90s than Fatal Attractions did. Especially stuff like the Jay Lee Mm -hmm. art. Yeah, this is way better than Fatal Attractions, guys. Like, hands down. So much more fun. And if we're going to talk about it in terms of, like, maybe it's not so great. It's definitely like guilty pleasure X-Men reading at its peak. I'm just going to go on record. I love Executioner's song. I know I've talked to people online, especially on Twitter, who think I'm crazy for this, but it's great. Yeah, it's like you and Chris Sims. Those are the (laughs) big, big Executioner's song fans. But you guys seem to really like it. I mean, here's the thing about Executioner's song. It has a lot of stuff I should like. We got Mr. Sinister Mm -hmm. being fabulous. We got Summer's family drama. We got X-Force being kind of, you know, kind of crazy, kind of dark. We got a lot of we got a lot of fun stuff that I tend to enjoy, mm-hmm. but something about everything coming together doesn't work. It might be the length on yeah. this one cuz this is this is a long long block of comics with I I think it's fair to say there's not really 12 issues worth of no, comics in. No, not this. at all. And, you know, I don't think it helps that if I'm not mistaken, this is the longest, you know, X crossover to this point. I think even if you go back and you look at the well, Inferno probably rivals it in terms of the total number of issues. But, well, Inferno's See cuz the Excalibur stuff in Inferno doesn't matter. Right. X the uh X Terminators you could Skip. go without mm-hmm. them. I mean, and then the even then the exterminator stuff is only really impacting the new mutant right. stuff, and then the men and X Factor stuff only impacts itself. So Inferno has a lot of issues, but they're all lumped into different different kind of sections. But I think you're right. This at up until the point was the longest big chunk of crossover. The next year they would blow that out of the water. Mm-hmm. By the way, yeah, up until 1993, this was the this was the stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I just I want to give a couple of like quick overviewing uh, bullet points as to why I like this. Nope, no pun intended with uh, with the bullet points. But you mentioned the f- first point, like this idea of uh, maximalism here. And, you know, when we think of the 90s, we kind of think of maximalism, right? Like how much stuff can we jam pack into these particular stories? And this has so much crammed into it. I agree, it doesn't need to be 12 issues long, but... We're getting Sinister, we're getting Apocalypse, we're getting Dark Riders, we're getting the MLF, we're getting the Horsemen. You know, we've got every single existing X team and every member that's on those teams at that given moment. And uh, the, the thing I think that's really the, the carrying point here that makes me go back to it is this does seem to me to be the payoff to what we get with X-Factor Endgame and with New Mutants 100. You know, if you were following these stories back in the 90s as a kid, these were like dangling plot points that you were really wanting Marvel to tie all this stuff together. So for Executioner's Song to pretty much come out and talk about the Summer's family tree with a culminating blue moon fight scene, this is like a dream come true. Does it all work? No. But do we get awesome stuff? Like you mentioned Jay Lee. Jay Lee is killing it here. Greg Capullo is killing it here. I'm going to go back to a lot of the, these individual issues quite a bit for years to come. Well, and I think that's fair. And you bring up something that may not have colored my read of it. So when I read uh, Executioner's Song, I read it as a part of a long chunk of adjectiveless and uncanny X-Men that I was going through. I had a big run of stuff 
through the 90s and I was just working my way through it. And this doesn't play as well into the strengths of and the running plot threads of those no. titles. But upon, you know, going back and knowing, okay, wait, what was X Factor doing? Okay, well, that's building off of the Endgame stuff and what's X Force doing? Yeah, I can definitely see how as a line-wide crossover, this works better it just isn't as closely tied to, you know, the center points of the yeah. line. And, and you know, you, you said before, this is not cohesive. Do we need cliffhangers like, will Reaper kill these two X-Men? No, of course he's not going to. He's a stupid side character from the MLF. <laughs> we don't need all those diversions. We probably could have gone a little bit more direct. But overall, I think there's a lot of fun to be had here. You know, there's a lot of little side adventures and here are excuses for X teams to fight one another that, I don't know, I just enjoy. So I want to get into ranking real, real quick, but you made me think of yeah. something. Who's the second best member of the MLF? Because Zero's number one. Like, that's that's fair. He has an amazing I design. would vote for Tempo. I think Tempo has a really kind of interesting couple of, at least, a, you know, a small arc in X-Force that happens after this that really makes her character a little bit more, has a little more depth. Um, whereas the rest of these guys, I mean, they're about as, as flat as a doodle in life old sketchbook. Hey, Hey, forearm, forearm has forearms. <laughs> so, I mean, he's real developed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there are so many forgotten members of the MLF. Uh, Those are the only three members like I know. Sumo and, and, um, Oh, uh, anybody that appeared in those late New Mutants uh, issues where they never come back, or, or if they did, I don't remember. Between that and the and the Dark Riders, it's like a B-villain list of champions here. Ah, yeah, that's good. So ranking, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out yes. here. I I think we can agree this is better than Fatal Attraction. Yes. I bet we can also agree this is worse than Mutant Genesis. Uh, yes. So that gives us from number eight to number eighteen. Mm-hmm. To uh, make a decision. I'm just going to grab a kind of that middle point. Messiah War. Better or worse? I like this more than Messiah War. I, I'm Nostalgia is coloring my opinion of this big time. I mean, you, you knew when we talked about Messiah War that I, I wasn't in love with it. Right. But I, I know you liked that uh, a lot more than I did. So I don't know. I feel like I'm looking in that er- that that area of our list where would you feel comfortable with it? I don't think it's better than like giant size X-Men. Uh, I think. Well, then I think that's exactly where okay. it goes. <laughs> I, I think that was going to be our big uh, debate. I'm fine with putting it above Messiah War at number 13. Uh, but going above giant size X-Men number one was going to be a big no, task. No, so... and to be clear, like I, I don't think Executioner's song is, you know, this triumph of storytelling or anything, but it has some really, really great art. It has some it's just fun to read and especially its climax is a i don't know it's a really cool story that that has a payoff for a lot of things that have been building for quite a few years so i like it a lot yeah i think i think that's good now we're going to talk about one of those building blocks right now yeah. we're going to talk about x-men number one <laughs> written by stan pencils by jack inks by paul reinman think about this oh you mean the issue where gene kind of awkwardly shows up to a school full of boys and gets harassed by them for many issues uh, many pages look 
There's nothing redeeming about Silver Age Jean Grey. <laughs> it's an unfortunate thing that we all have to deal with. Rereading this, it really struck out to, stuck out to me how much branding is going on here. Like the number of times that X-Men is repeated on the last page. And, you know, it seems so much about getting people to buy the next issue than it is necessarily about character development. Well, there's not a lot of character development, period. I mean, Magneto famously appears in this mm -hmm. issue and he does nothing oh he's fantastic in this because he's just this sort of like i, I don't even know how to describe him he's dr doom he's, he's silver age dr yeah, doom that's all he's he sort is. of like a, a b-movie villain tiptoeing around and his his powers already make no sense whatsoever which is fantastic i love that the first use of magneto's powers canonically is skywriting yeah, and he has beautiful handwriting i mean like we, oh, we have to point out that his cursive is impeccable and as as his powers escalate over the course of the pages, it's just amazing to me. Like, what is he even trying to do? Like, I don't even know. You know, we'll send these child soldiers in and they're Rolls Royce and we're going to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. So and this this is true about X-Men number one. And I think it's true about really the whole of at least Stan and Jack run on X-Men. It's not very good, but it's filled to the brim with good ideas. Yeah. The opening, you know, three quarters of a splash page. Great. I I know exactly what Iceman, Angel, and the Beast's deal are. Cyclops just runs around and acts like a stick in the mud, which, okay, <laughs> I'll get brand. that. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, they deal with those real quick. They uh, do some, not called it yet, but danger room mm -hmm. stuff. Right, right in the room. It's, right in, it's like a living yeah. room. Uh, and, and we're there. Wait, are you saying that there's a living danger room? I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Wow. <laughs> good call. Good. I like that. that. That's good. Oh, man. Can, can you imagine if, like, in X-Men 1, like, the, the last uh, cliffhanger was dangered, like, pops out? It's like, by the way, your living room is a sentient creature. Yeah, I love the fact that he the, the danger room obstacles are just sort of, like, in front of his armchair in, in this living room area. I don't know. It's great. Yeah, it's it's cool. I mean, there's look, Jack Kirby's very good at mm -hmm. art, and Jack Kirby continues to be very good at art in this. Yeah. Like even the silly stuff, it's it has that dynamicism that Kirby's acclaimed for. I mean, there's there's a lot to like about this, but it's it's Silver Age X Men, and it's tough to dig into. There's not a lot of depth to it. I mean. It took a while for X-Men to find its voice, to find its footing. Even the old stuff, like, it really didn't take take off until Neil Adams got going with it. That's when it started to really feel like it had its own kind of voice, its own kind of style. So this, I mean, the first issue of X-Men, it feels like any random issue of a Silver Age comic, but it doesn't, to me feel like anything that i'd be you know remembering it doesn't feel like this is the start of a cultural phenomenon no you get the idea that these are some cool characters that have been popping around in stan and jack's heads uh, be it design wise or, or character wise and you know we're gonna have a zany adventure here uh, you know we talked about the gene stuff uh, a little bit but that certainly colors any reading of this despite the fact that that she does seem to have some agency in terms of what her powers are and and that she's 
not taking any nonsense from everybody. And she has a fabulous outfit. Yeah. You know, Professor X already comes across as like this cold jerk. So he's on brand. But, you know, even the individual characterizations of the O5 are are a little bit off. You know, um, Hank is seems very, very different than we're used to. Well, yeah, it took Hank. I think they I was reading something recently that Stan was saying, and he said, you know, it took it took like three or four issues for him to realize that he didn't want Beast to be the thing. Uh He didn't want him just to be the tough guy on the team. He wanted to do something different with that. Yeah, and so that's when you start to get the, you know, kind of smart, jovial beast. Character. Yes. It, obviously, historically, this is important. Um, it starts, you know, the franchise that we know and love uh, and that we're obsessed with. But as a standalone story, it, you know, it, it has the same flaws that a lot of first issues do. You know, if you go back to Fantastic Four, number one, it has a lot of issues. This is not better than FF number one. No, I'm not, I'm not suggesting it is. All of these first issues are, are experiments and, and trying to find their footing and who these characters are and what their world is and what their, their dynamics are. And, you know, this, this is getting started. Where, where would you rank uh, X-Men Volume 1, number one, on our uh, grand list here? So we have one Silver Age X-Men story mm-hmm. on the list right now. Yeah. It's X-Men 12 and 13, the coming of the Juggernaut stuff. Yeah. I think the Juggernaut stuff works better. I do too. It's it's a better Silver Age X-Men story. Like, this isn't the worst part of Stan and Jack's run. No. But it's sure not the best. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just here are the characters. They're going to go on a wacky adventure. Here's the supervillain, muhahaha, and then they're going to mince words and call it a day. We're, we're not going to get much more depth than that. So right now that Juggernaut story is at 21. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out where, where I put it. It's coherent, so it's better than New Mutant Summer Special 1990. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how I feel about it compared to No More Humans and Deadly Genesis, though. Which are both stories that I think we are have the same opinion on, just on each other's story. So I think you like Deadly Genesis, and you think it's, while flawed, enjoyable, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of. And I think No More Humans is something I like, but it's flawed and enjoyable. And we both kind of dislike the other one. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna go to the bat for Deadly Genesis as being like the best thing ever, but I did think there were some really cool elements in it. I I honestly I think. Just because of the historical uh, perspective of this um, and being that it's it's the uh, the green light to the series, I might put it ahead of Deadly Genesis just because, you know, here we are. We're, we're trying to get off the ground, you know, with the whole series. And I don't know that I'm going to revisit this that often, but um, I think it deserves credit for coming up with these characters, coming up with these ideas and, and trying to put them in action. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. So our new number 22 is X-Men number one, the one that everyone doesn't own. (laughs) Yeah, no gatefold covers here, guys. Sorry. Not not yet. Uh, Not yet. We're not there. Speaking of gatefold covers. Oh, no, this is just a this just a wraparound. It's a wraparound. It's a wraparound. It's holographic. Uh, Not not holographic. Does this classify as chrome? Uh, It's chrome adjacent. Yeah. Uh, it's not embossed, but it's... I, I don't know how what, what you would describe... Shiny. It's shiny. It's a shiny color. It is. It's reflective. We'll go with that. It's, it's Generation X 1 through 3. Yes. The first arc of the Scott Lobdell, Chris Bachelot, Generation X. Uh, Mark Buckingham inked it. And Adam, can you remember the days when only one person could ink a Chris Bachelot comic <gasps> and not 30? I am... 
I, you know, I'm really struck going back to this, the level and amount of detail in each of these issues. You know, this run that lasts roughly less than 10 issues for the beginning of this series, the artwork is astounding on this. He's coming off of working on some Vertigo stuff. Shade the Changing Man. Yeah, Yeah, Shade. I think he does the death one shot. And he's definitely bringing those Vertigo sensibilities over here. Buckingham is doing a beautiful job with the inks. And I think that that alone colors my opinion of of all of it. The writing is is great, too. Um, And we can talk about that as well. But it's funny that you say that because clearly over the years, Chris has developed a style that allows him to get his stuff out on time. You know, better be it bi-monthly or or with a team or army of inkers or whatever it is. I'm glad that he found whatever works for him. But I am astounded when you go back to these issues at just how much detail is in every single panel. Yeah, this this is insane. Like, Chris Batchelow is my favorite comic book artist. I, I don't know if I mentioned that on this show. I know I've talked about it on the website. He's my favorite. I've got a poster of some of his stuff sitting in my basement. Like... I like, I like me some Bachelor. I, I am right there with you. I have tried as much as, you know, I'm a huge Art Adams guy, but I have tried as much as possible to read just about anything that, that Chris illustrates, especially his X-Men stuff. I realize I'm missing big chunks of, I think, the Carrie run, especially this era. After this, he does this, this interesting creator-owned series called Steampunk that almost no one read um, and is really... Sorry, what? Have you ever read Steampunk? I'm finding it on Amazon right now. Okay, Steampunk is 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 an interesting thing to search out because it is him at at his probably most detail obsessed and some of the page layouts are so complex that it's often been very criticized for being almost nonsensical in places and because of poor sales it never actually got past its second arc definitely find it check it out and obsess over every page because if you like his artwork it is an absolutely beautiful beautiful representation of his work yeah this looks gorgeous okay yeah okay yeah this is i great. can't promise it makes a damn lick of sense but it is cool as heck <laughs> Yeah, that this looks like a Chris Bachelor comic. Yeah, and speaking of of cool as heck, I absolutely love. I think this. Uh, we're just doing the first three issues here. The first three issues of Generation X are clearly the most. I think one of the most successful continuations of the X brand that that has ever been attempted. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, obviously, you've got your Uncanny X Men, then you get your New Mutants, and there are other you know, launches, you know, obviously all due respect to things like X-Force or the relaunch of X-Factor, which are both really cool in their own rights. But I think in terms of relaunching what the X-Men are supposed to be about, a school, kids, misfits, this hits all of them and it does it extremely, extremely well. Well, this was, this was the first time that they really bought into the school idea. Mm -hmm. Like they, they paid lip service to it in the original run but you know they graduated by the end of stan and jack's right arc they tried a little bit of it in x factor but that didn't go anywhere new mutants i mean they were in a school but they were more interested in hijinks generation x is about the kids yeah and that's what really makes this work yeah sean and emma are there but generation x is about the kids and their relationship like 
one of the one of the key moments of this run or this uh, you know three issue arc that really sticks out to me is in issue two. It's Husk and Skin, and it's a stormy night out, and they're playing Scrabble. Uh, I'm glad you brought this up. And you know, Bachelor's layout all of this is gorgeous, and like the page you just gotta, it's on unlimited. Finally, go pull it up. These two kids are just feeling each other out, trying to understand what makes the other one tick. And Skin is doing a much better job of it than Husk is, who's just getting frustrated and doesn't think anyone's taking her seriously because she's trying so hard to be the smartest and the best one and live up to, you know, her brother and her whole family and all this stuff. And, you know, Skin's just sitting there. It's like, yeah, I I, I know what you really are. (laughs) It's great. I love this part. Yeah. I I think another thing that really works in the favor of this book and in terms of what it means for the uh, the metaphor of what we often assume X-Men is about is that, and I'll, uh, I'll go on a little Jubilee rant in a second here, but the majority of these characters, their powers are gross and or specifically designed in a way that distance them from other people. You know, there's there's issues of passing here. There are issues of human connectedness that, you know, someone like Chamber, who has like a black hole in the lower part of his face and into his chest, skin, whose skin like is this sort of ooey, droopy, not cool like Mr. Fantastic, husk, who's ripping off her skin. These are really, really interesting powers that have a, a theme around them and i love that in the mix of all of that you get jubilee at her most attitudorific <laughs> this is peak jubilee for me um i uh, you know i love how they built up to this with phalanx uh covenant but man it's so cool to see jubilee in more of a role than just either the kid in the X school or Wolverine sidekick to be a starring role in, in a series like this is so cool. Yeah, it's it's great. Jubes is awesome in this. And I think you bring up a lot of good points about what makes the actual cast work. Mm-hmm. A couple of things about this that don't work. So the first issue is about picking Chamber up at the airport. Yes. And then M-Plate shows up. And I like M-Plate as a villain. I think he's a... You know, He's a very Chris Bachelor design, but there's nothing wrong with that. After uh, after the first issue, this arc starts to focus on Penance, and I think that's where a lot of the problems come across. Uh, Penance is a character that has a really good design, but she was never fully realized, and I don't think this arc does much to uh, to do that. I mean, she's a mystery in this arc. She is, you know, the, ooh, what's going on with Penance? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that works as well. I think there are a lot of the character voices in general kind of hit real good i mean jubilee works right away chamber skin husk those go you know real good real quick monet uh takes a little bit to really click but when she does it's great it's just she's going through some weird plot stuff that doesn't super work uh, and i think you're, you're bringing up a good point is that while gen x starts really really strong where it goes in its later iterations as the run continues um, doesn't really satisfy a lot of the great mystery stuff that it starts to build up when it starts, which is disappointing because uh, right at the beginning here, you have the promise of new characters like uh, the mystery of Penance or who this Mondo guy is that's sitting on a beach. And, you know where these things go and what the resolution of, of some of these storylines are is, is not necessarily all that great. And I, 
honestly, I think a lot of that has to do with Chris not necessarily being on board to to see this through. And it's understandable because I don't understand even how he got through the number of issues that he did um, before he took a break and, and just did covers for a while. Oh, yeah. Especially when you talk about the Generation Next stuff that he does in like a couple of issues, which take the level of detail that are in these three and crank it up to 11. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. I think even though, you know, there are some flaws once we start talking about the series in, in terms of a whole, in terms of context, I still think this is an incredibly strong start. It's a really good successor to New Mutants. And I just like the basic concept. I like the Massachusetts Academy being where they are, the Danger Grotto. Um, I like Banshee and White Queen being the headmasters. I like the cast. I love the art. So um, I, I really enjoyed it. I do too. So uh, where, where do you think we should rank it? What's your gut feel? I would go, I would go a little high with this. Um, and I, I'm starting to look maybe top 10 here. I think this is better than X-Men 92. Yep. Now I'm starting to kind of like look at individual things like Wolverine and the X-Men 17 to say whether I think they're better than them. I don't think this is better than the Barry Windsor Smith uh, Wounded Wolf issue. Yeah, Uncanny uh, X-Men 205 that's sitting at number eight right now. And I think that's that's exactly where I'm looking. Is is this better than the dupe issue? I All right. For me personally, I think this is. Um, I think the dupe thing is really fun. And it has a lot of, um, I think we talked about all the Easter eggs that are in there. But this is classic. I mean, this is an amazing start to a really fun series. And the art is absolutely gorgeous. It has some really great character moments. So I, I would put it after Wounded Wolf at number nine. Where, Adam, what are you thinking? Adam, this yeah. is why we do a podcast. Together. Yeah. This is why we. This is why this works. Because that's, <laughs> yep. Yep, that's going above the dupe issue. It's going below Wounded yeah. Wolf. It's right. number nine, Generation X, Volume 1, 1 through 3, by Mr. Sad Team himself, Scott Lobdell, and Mr. <laughs> Good Art, Chris Bachelot. Nice. That does it. That's an episode. All right, we made it through. We let's did. Let's, let's wrap this bad boy up here. If you enjoyed the show, there's a couple of things you can do that's going gonna, gonna to help us out. You know, you could uh, go on to patreon.com slash Xavier Files and throw a couple of dollars our way. That pays for the hosting. That pays for the equipment. That pays for everything that uh, that makes this show happen. For $2, you can get your selection. Whatever you want us to rank, we'll rank it. Just like we ranked for G-Funk earlier in this episode. You know, you can do that. If you can't or don't want to support monetarily, I get it. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I don't support all of them on Patreon. But what you can do is go on to your local podcast getting thing, iTunes or Google Play, leave us a rating or a review or something like that, and uh, yeah, that really helps us out. Beyond any of that, just go to uh, you know twitter.com slash Xavier Files, and that's where you can find me. I'm also at XavierFiles.com, where you can find this entire show, the entire back catalog, the master list. You can find my weekly X-Men articles. Um, and it's a, it's a good time. Adam, Adam, where can people find you online? Uh, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow it at Arthur Stacy. Um, and you can also go over to adamrec.tumblr.com. Um, I just wrapped up, uh, Bish and Jube's Age of Strife, and I'm working with a couple different artists on some pinup stuff that's going to go into hopefully another print edition like we did for the first issue. 
and we'll see how that works out. And I already actually started work on uh, the next one, but I'm a little bogged down with Inktober right now. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that progresses, but uh, you guys can look forward to that as well. You got plans for uh, getting those print issues out to people? I think at this point, because I'm waiting on the pinup art, we're probably looking at a little bit of a delay. Um, but I'm really hoping before the holidays um, that we can get something set up to get those out to people. Okay, good, because I need I need it for my collection. I've got a <laughs> lot of fish and jubes in some long boxes that nice. I do need to get do need to get sorted out. All right. No, but that's good. Uh, that has been a good old battle of the atom. I think we had a had a good list. Yeah, these are good stuff. We're up to yeah. 30 now, Zach. We're up to 30. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, you guys can join us next week as we take a deep, deep dive into Inferno. But until then, this has been Battle of the Atom. I hope you survived the experience. Get it!